Attack of the Final Girls is a podcast about the horror genre, so listener discretion is advised. Please check the show notes for specific content warnings for this episode, and of course, beware of spoilers. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Attack of the Final Girls. I'm Teresa. And I'm Juliet. And we're here once again on our bi-weekly crusade to cover every horror movie. No, I'm just kidding. That's not what we're doing. That'd be a lot of movies. Every horror movie ever. At least we'd be set for life. I mean, truly. When I just think about like how many horror movies are in my house right now, I'm like, oh, gosh. That's probably a lifetime's worth. Uh, it's more than I think it's multiple lifetimes worth. <laughs> well, we're here to tell you on our bi-weekly mission about watching horror movies and having fun and, you know, cool stuff like that. And if you want to support that mission, we have a Patreon. We're at patreon.com slash attack of the final girls. And if you become a patron, you will get not just our awesome biweekly episodes as you do, you'll get all kinds of bonus goodies. We've been doing hot takes as movies are coming back to the theater. We've got several up there right now. Another one uh, that'll be coming right on the heels of this episode in the regular feed. And we are in the midst of our journey back into the Flaniverse watching uh, Haunting of Hill House episode by episode. So we've got, uh, as of the posting of this episode, episodes one and two of the television show are available now for our patrons. And we'll be going through all 10 of that series. And then after that, who knows, we'll do something else very cool. I don't know what it'll be, but it'll be cool. Maybe it'll be books. Maybe it'll be another TV series. Maybe it'll be music. I don't even know if we could like, we could probably do that. Oof. That'd be so hard for me. Oh, that's true. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, follow we along. We would do it. Yeah. <laughs> it would be tough, though. <laughs> We're posting our adventures on there. We're like, Patreon is new to us, but we have tons of content already. Yeah. So yeah. it's definitely a worthy endeavor. Just check it out. Well, what are we talking about today, Julia? We are talking about a film that I've seen many times. That This was a first watch for you. This is a first watch for me, inexplicably. Which, yeah, that's wild to me that you hadn't seen this one, but I'm so excited that this got to be your first watch. We're watching Misery from 1990, of course, based on the Stephen King novel, Kathy Bates and James Caan tearing it up on screen. It's a horror classic, really. There's so much to chew on, but I just want to start off by saying I did read the book and I am a huge Stephen King fan for the most part. I know this is going to be an unpopular take, but I'm just going to say it right off the rip. A lot of Stephen King novels are about 600 pages too long, and uh, it ends up being like, I know he really loves the dig at the end, and I get that, but I don't need the extra 600 pages in order to enjoy it. And I know, I'm so sorry, Stephen King fans, I'm bracing myself for all of the, <laughs> the hate and vitriol, but I do enjoy a lot of his books. I loved Misery. Yeah. I really enjoyed oh, yeah. Misery. And there are others that I really enjoy of his, but then there are some where I'm just like, Meh. I mean, I think that's fair. And really, this kind of ties into the movie. I think to just blindly worship an author is, it's a little foolish, mm -hmm. you know, Um I certainly, you know, I talk about Anne Rice all the time. She is one of my favorite authors. Her work is really important to me. Not all of her books are good, though. Right. I'll just say it, you yeah. know. There are some of them that have almost become affectionately bad to me, you know. Mm -hmm. Like, I still love them, but they're really, really bad. I can parse that out. Yeah. So I think that's okay. And really, that 
is related to the movie because this movie does touch on in a very 90s kind of way what it means to be a fan of a creator's work. Mm -hmm. And like, don't get me wrong, On Writing by Stephen King, I think is probably one of the best books about the art of writing that you could possibly read. It makes me cry every time I read it, which is ridiculous, but also it makes perfect sense. I don't know. I can't explain it. It feels like he lives inside of my head a little bit, and sometimes he's speaking directly to me. So while I think Stephen King is magical, I also think that he has his faults, and that, I think, comes through in his writing in a very self-aware way. And this book is, or this movie, based off of the book, is no exception. Just to kind of recap this, if folks have not seen it, which... I know that most people have probably seen this, but if you haven't, this is an incredible time to go back and watch this movie. It holds up even now. Absolutely. Even, you know, <laughs> 33 years later, this <laughs> this came out the year that I was born. So that is well, kind of funny. Why the 90s so long ago? <laughs> I know. I was like trying to calculate in my head and I was like, no, th- 13 years. <laughs> it's still 2000 in my head when I'm yeah. trying to do that math but it's essentially about James Kahn who plays Paul Sheldon famous writer gets into an unfortunate car accident right on the heels of completing his magnum opus and he is saved slash kidnapped by Annie Wilkes played by Kathy Bates his number one fan and chaos ensues Truly. (laughs) Chaos definitely ensues. A timely fact about this movie is that Kathy Bates was basically a newcomer to Hollywood at the time that she was cast in this. There were several other potential castings that didn't work out for a variety of reasons. I guess Bette Midler turned the role down, which she said in retrospect was a big mistake. And Angelica Houston was also up for this role. But she had another movie that she was in that was a conflict. So they cast Kathy Bates. She ended up winning an Oscar for Best Actress, the first person to win Best Actress for a horror film, and a rare win (laughs) for horror, I'll just say it. Yeah, so we're hot on the heels of the Academy Awards nominations for 2023 coming out, and once again, it's a huge letdown for horror in general, especially with the 2022 huge stacked list of like very worthy, very deserving horror movies. And not even just for direction, actress, actor, that kind of thing. But also there are lots of horror movies that excel in some of maybe the lesser discussed award categories like best set design or best sound or best soundtrack or something like that. I really think a lot of horror films excel in those areas even if they're not quote-unquote Oscar bait in terms of, like, story or acting. I truly think this year that Nope not being nominated for sound alone is, like, one of the biggest snubs in all of Hollywood. And also, having said that, a lot of horror directors have already kind of resigned themselves to the fact that they're not going to be getting those awards. Right. They're not making them for those awards. So, you know, take from that what you will. Yeah, it's a fairly well-known fact at this point. You know, it's always a pleasant surprise to see a horror film on the nomination list. I'm never truly surprised when there's not one on there. But it's still, when you've experienced 
many good worthy films and I'm not saying every horror film is worthy of an Oscar because it's not Mm -hmm. but when there are some really good worthy films and performances out there to see them just seemingly intentionally ignored is really annoying Mm -hmm. and then you see things like and I'll just say it because I'll be open about my hatred for this franchise you see Avatar up for best picture (laughs) yeah you know like come on just because a movie is extremely expensive or, right. you know, produced slash directed by a very well-known or, you know, high name director and no shade to James Cameron. He's making what he wants sure. and he gets to do that at this point because he's, you know, he's paid his dues or he's a cis white man in Hollywood. Yeah. Ergo, he, you know, gets all of the laurels or whatever. But I mean, we've talked about it in our best of 2022 episode there were some incredible heavy hitters yeah. uh, in 2022, notably Mia Goth. I mean, a back-to-back incredible and performance for two very different, very yeah. challenging roles that required a lot of range. Nothing. Yeah. And people, like, kind of make fun of slash poo-poo the Fangoria Chainsaw Awards. But they're, like... They are addressing these things. They are, yeah. They're saying like, hey, how about indie horror movies? How about um, short films? How about limited release films? How about straight to streaming? That's another thing is like, you know, with streaming now, we have like these Oscar bait movies, you know, that are made for streaming. And it's like, that's great. But you're missing an entire very multifaceted genre of movies just because it has horror in the genre listing. Yeah. And that's not really fair. It it isn't giving credit to a lot of hard work and Absolutely. passion, you know, that people have for this genre. And I think even now, just in the past five years, if we talk about A24, if we talk about Ari Aster, Robert Eggers, you know, folks like this, and those are just the first ones that come to mind, but certainly not an exhaustive list. These are folks that are pushing boundaries and changing the way that the horror landscape looks and kind of like paving the way for new and Absolutely. emerging types of horror to happen. And they're not getting any credit. Yeah. And it's not like this is the first time this has ever happened. Like Kathy Bates being the first person to get, and not only did she get an Oscar, she also got a Golden Globe for this. Yeah. She was the first person to get either for those. It's like, that's, you know, 60 years of primetime cinema. Yeah, she was the first person to get Best Actress. The last time somebody won an Oscar for horror in acting was Frederick March, who was in Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde in 1931. Exactly. So, <laughs> so it's literally almost 60 years yeah. of horror cinema. That's including Jaws. That's including yeah. Psycho. Jaws got best score and best sound mixing and best editing. And then it was a best picture nominee. But sometimes those nominations kind of feel like a snub. I mean, Jaws is regularly ranked among the top 10 horror movies of all oh, time. Yeah. And lots of people I know personally are like, yeah, I don't want to go into the ocean still now because of Jaws that came out in the 70s. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, like, to know that that didn't... It it got Best Picture nominee. Okay, that's great. But it didn't win. Like, let us be the first. No, we're not the first. Um, (laughs) Why... add our voices to the chorus. Yeah, add our voices to the chorus of saying, it's time 
the Academy needs to be more flexible. Yeah. Sci-fi. And and it's not just horror, sci-fi, science fiction as well. Science fiction gets snubbed on a regular basis. Science fiction is real. Those movies are real. They're absolutely worthy. And it's time. There's no reason not to have this happen for the Academy to start looking at movies that aren't just indie films or made by big names or, you know... So many of the movies that I see on those Academy Awards lists, I'm like, I've never even heard of this movie. Yeah. It didn't even play at our art house. Yeah, theaters. there were there are actually several this year for the Best Picture nomination that I'm like, we didn't even get this at either of our art houses. Like, I, who who is seeing this, you yeah. know? But I'm crossing my fingers. Everything, everywhere, all at once should win all of the awards this year. 11 nominations. And I hope they win all of them. Me too. I did see a tweet today, though, just to piggyback off of what you just said. Somebody said, like, uh, how there's so much more hate now for everything, everywhere, all at once than there was even when it came out of people saying, like, I don't like this. I didn't see myself in this. This isn't for me. And they were saying, like, why is it that Asian American people have to have insane excellence in order to be lumped in the same category as white mediocrity? Yeah, absolutely. And I was like, oh, that's such a powerful, that's so powerful because I will absolutely agree with that. Yeah. I mean, you could could say that with any really group of color in terms of filmmaking you know i mean that's the sort of jordan peele conundrum is why does jordan peele and he is excellent but why does the bar have to be set so freaking high for him you know and i'm talking about some of the criticism for nope like Mm -hmm. why does he have to do so much more than every other white horror director oh yeah you know just to get validated and recognized and and all of that yeah (sighs) steps off soapbox. (laughs) (laughs) But it's all related because, you know, misery is about fandom. Mm -hmm. It's about being fiercely protective of the thing that you love and find affinity with. And for Mm -hmm. us, that happens to be horror. We are not going to go Annie Wilkes on this. (laughs) (laughs) No, but if you're a horror fan, especially if you are specifically a horror fan, you don't even pay close attention to things like this right, because yeah. it, it never it will never not make you upset. Yeah. Because they're like, well, it's about acting and it's about filmmaking. And it's like, you can't tell me that the guys that are out there every single day trying to or people that are out there every day trying to make the best horror movie, you know, going through it, these actors that are putting it all on the line and going through all these crazy things that they deserve it any less. Yeah, exactly. But I will say that I was absolutely flabbergasted to learn that this was Kathy Bates's breakout role. Right. Yeah. Yeah. She's one of those actors that you feel like has just like always been around working, mm-hmm. doing awesome, awesome things. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I haven't seen this movie before, but I've seen her in tons of other stuff, both on the serious side and also on the like campy schlocky side thinking about American Horror Story yeah, <laughs> or like uh, The Office. She was in a couple of seasons of The Office. I've seen her in so many things and to know that this was the first and like also see how well, because she had a stage career before this that was fairly successful. But anytime there was a television or movie adaptation of a play that she was doing that was wildly successful on Broadway or off-Broadway, it always went to a better known or 
more conventionally attractive actress. Right. And that was something I wanted to talk about with this is like Kathy Bates was cast in this role specifically because of how she looked. Yeah. Because she was described as like dowdy mm-hmm. or like, you know, homely looking, which is never that, like I feel like people say that as an insult, Absolutely. not as yes. a compliment. Yeah. But I love that it didn't stop her from giving her all in this performance. Absolutely. Yeah. It's frustrating when somebody gets typecast like that. But on the other hand, this was also 1990. Yeah. And this is also Stephen King, who's a cis white man. Yep. And kind of has a history of, you know, being a little bit of a, well, you can't really be a little bit, being a misogynist towards yeah. female characters or yeah. femme characters in his books. I think he's come a long way. Yeah, definitely. I mean, he's had like his writing career is now almost 60 years long Mm -hmm. so i think he's come a long way since misery but on the other hand it is frustrating when you're like oh she's supposed to be homely and like dowdy and unattractive and that's kind of like the thing that this hinges on is the fact that she does not perceive herself to be attractive yeah or that she can't be attractive towards men Oh, yeah. Yeah. You can definitely see that that was the intent of the filmmakers. And what's troubling about that is, if nothing else, I mean, I think she's actually very pretty, but she's very average looking. Like, she's a very pretty average looking person. And the fact that so often in film, average looking, average sized people are, you know, put in that dowdy, uh, fat, overweight, ugly, you know, homely category is just so depressing, you know, because it just reinforces, you know, all of the things that society does to make people, femme people specifically, but I, I will lump mask people in with this too, make them feel lesser than and make them really struggle with, you know, body acceptance and self-acceptance and all of that. And knowing that this is in 1990, I mean, this is like the prime time for, you know, Cindy Crawford. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. And for the fad dieting to be extremely popular. So I can definitely see that come through. Now, being in 2023, we know, like, this is a normal person. Right. But you can see how those things kind of bleed through in the movie. Like, oh, she's homely. She wears her cross outside her shirt. She always wears her hair neatly pinned to the side. Her clothes are, like, alternatively butch, you know, ranging from, like, sort of butch to, like, like, school matronly almost when she's wearing, like, her denim smock dresses. And I say school matronly because my music teacher when I was in elementary school, (laughs) she always had like kind of a smock dress on. Yeah. But like very plain, no makeup, little to no makeup, no nail polish. She has kind of like accepted where she is, except for one scene in the movie. She's not really trying to impress anyone. It doesn't seem like she's very set. She's aware of how she looks and she's like okay well I live in my house by myself so this is how I look because it's comfortable and now like 2023 I'm like yeah no she's a very like she's a normal person yeah 
But I know in 1990, like, that was the intent. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, we are made to think, especially because of the timing and because of a couple of the things the sheriff says when he comes to her house toward the end, you know, it is pointed out that it's a little odd that she's a woman living in a big house all by herself and she's got a farm and she takes care of it by herself. I mean, 2023 me is like, yeah, great. Get it, girl. You <laughs> yeah, know, like cottage core. <laughs> that looks kind of nice. Yeah. Yeah. I would have a pig. Yeah, sure. <laughs> sure. You know, I think as an audience, especially as the primary new release audience to this film, we are meant to understand, you know, other characteristics aside that it is somehow antithetical to our goals of like beauty and romance and all of that in part because despite all of this having a pretty nice life you know we are meant to see her as you know we'll get into the neurodivergent stuff here in a minute but yearning you know and again nothing wrong with escaping into a good book if I do say so myself but we're meant to understand in my opinion her connection with misery in the novels as being yearning for something that she couldn't possibly ever have exactly. because of the way that she looks and the life that she lives. Yeah. And like, not cool. Yeah. <laughs> not cool at all. Yeah. I struggle with piecing together how this movie would be made now if they yeah. if they decided to reboot it, which we're kind of in the age of reboots. So like, watch out. Maybe that's happening eventually. Who knows? Oh God, I... Oof. It would be so different. Yeah, it would with, be very different. With the internet. Like, oh, I yeah. don't know how you could do it without fundamentally changing the story in the digital age. And maybe Stephen King is not going to let that happen right now. Yeah, maybe not. <laughs> He's like, typewriters are integral to the story. Well, I'm just thinking about the lack of cell phones, the lack of GPS, oh, yeah. you know, and fandom pre-internet. You know, because that's one thing I think about is I had to sort of like step back. I've seen this movie a bunch of times, but thinking about it like critically when we just watched it, I had to kind of step back and like reassess and remind myself this is what fandom was, you know, before everyone had a computer in their homes that was connected to the internet, Mm -hmm. you know, and I am of the age that I am like, very early internet fandom like I was part of like the early internet x-files fandom that was kind of like one of the earliest tv fandoms at least that found community online but there was an age you know there was a time when you were part of fandom maybe all on your own yeah (laughs) not connected to others and and we're seeing that there and I think that for as much as people now don't understand and talk very disparagingly about fandom I think it was even worse then Mm -hmm. because there weren't enough visible examples like now at least there are very easily accessible examples to point to people like hey like the way you're characterizing people who like this or this is not entirely true or is inaccurate look at this look at this look at this Back then, you would just have to be like, if you were even going to challenge that, like, hey, that's not cool. I met a person once in another city one time, and they seemed fairly normal, air quotes normal. So exactly. it's just a whole different experience. I don't know how they'd make it today. 
I was talking to somebody, they were talking about Star Trek, which that's a whole thing, but he mentioned like when Star Trek, like let's just talk next gen and like yeah, absolutely. late 80s, early ni- and through the 90s, through DS9, through Voyager, all that. If you saw every episode of a TV show. Me? Yeah. <laughs> that was me. You were considered a fanatic. Yes. Because it was so oh, yes. hard to catch all of the TV shows. And if you didn't get to watch them during the original broadcast, buying those VHS tapes, buying each season of like six or seven VHS tapes or more oh, was yeah. like prohibitively expensive. Yeah. There'd be no way. Yeah. Now, if you've seen all of the episodes of a TV show one time, that's not enough. Right. Now, in order to be obsessed, it's like, you've got to watch it three, four times. Yeah. And I was like, that is so, so true. Yeah. Because I think we all take for granted streaming. Absolutely. The fact that you're able to go back, like, with books, it's always been a little different because if you buy the books or if you go to the library, you can always go back and revisit that Yep. for relatively low or no extra money. Yeah. But for TV or movies, it's like... Okay, well, if you didn't see it during original broadcast, you better hope that you catch it on syndication because you're definitely not going to drop $120 on one season of VHS tapes of a TV show. Oh, yeah. Or if you do, that's pretty intense. Well, yeah, and even like fan fiction now, you know, there was the era where, you know, to access fan fiction, you had to get on your dial-up modem (laughs) and go, you know, to a website and, you know, you would probably end up printing it out to read it later And now, (laughs) like, you know, we can all just read it on our phone and it doesn't seem weird or unusual because people have all kinds of apps to read stuff on their phone. So, like, you can be reading, like, the weirdest, like, I don't even know what fan fiction on your phone and nobody's going to be any wiser. Yeah. And nobody would know. You could be completely anonymous Rather than, like, having to purchase some fanzine by money order, you know? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Back in the day, like, in the back of some, like, specific fan magazine that you (laughs) you bought. Oh, man. Those were the days. (laughs) It was a simpler time. One of the other things that I think is, like, sort of charming about this movie, being that it was made in the 90s, is that Rob Reiner directed it. Yeah. I have a huge affinity for Rob Reiner. The first movie I ever saw by Rob Reiner was The Princess Bride. Oh, yeah. Which that book, if you haven't read, is absolutely incredible. I read the book after I watched the movie, and it's even more endearing to me than the movie is somehow. I don't even know how it possibly could be, but it is. But The Princess Bride is like one of those movies that's near and dear to my heart that you can come at it with crossbows and cannonballs <laughs> and I don't even care I'm just like okay well I still I still love it I still I love, love buttercup forever I still love buttercup I still love Andre the giant like he's like the big fierce protector in my head yeah and go Montoya all that but Rob Reiner has a very specific directorial style and he also did this a spinal tap which is like totally different yeah watch this a spinal tap if you haven't seen it it's hilarious yes But he has some hallmarks that are really evident in this one. And I think it makes it all the more charming, like the sound cues, the music, the bright, upbeat music that he uses. That is not something that you really find in movies today. Definitely not. That is one thing that I was thinking about when you were saying, like, I wonder what this would be like if it was made today. Is 
the score would be completely different. It wouldn't have that big, like, kind of classic cinematic score. Mm -hmm. It would be, you know, and I'm saying this with a lot of love because these are my favorite scores. It would be something really moody, really ambient, like really tonal based, Mm -hmm. you know. It would not be something that, you know, sounds like, and I don't remember who did the score for this one, but, you know, sounds comfortable next to a Jerry Goldsmith or a Hans Zimmer or John Williams. Yeah, I honestly would not be surprised if this was Jerry Goldsmith. Mark Shaman. Okay, so this dude racked them up in the 90s. He did The Addams Family. He did Sister Act, another movie very near and dear to my heart from when I was a kid. He did A Few Good Men, Sleepless in Seattle, Addams Family Values, City Slickers 2. So like... Just count them off. Like, all movies in the early 90s where tons of people were watching that. He did First Wives Club. Oh, yeah. Love First Wives Club. He just completely, like, slew the early 90s. (laughs) He had that, like, very specific sort of classic sounding. um, Yeah, definitely. Like, cinematic score. Yeah. You, You needed those, like, bright openings and entrances to make you feel comfortable in a movie. For sure. Yeah. I think... We've gotten, well, you know, score styles change with time, you know, just like cinema techniques change with time. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, we've moved away from that by and large. You know, there are certain franchises and types of movies that can still get away with a variation on that, mainly if it's composed either by one of the classics that are still around or somebody who's really, really good at emulating them, like a uh, Ludwig Gordonson who can do a lot with like classic theming and then Mm -hmm. twist it a little bit. But by and large, we don't do that type of scoring anymore. Right. It's very different. And it stands out. It stands out quite a bit when you do hear that in a movie. Another thing that I really loved about this that is full-on 90s is Annie's love of tawdry romance novels is completely viable because in the 80s and 90s, that was the thing that most women read. Yeah. It was like, not to say that they didn't read anything else, but... If you went to the bookstore or if you went to a library, the things that women were reading or the things that people, you know, mass media thought women were reading are things like Nora Roberts, things like Sandra Brown. Absolutely. V.C. Andrews. That was still a thing that people were reading at the time. Those were the number one names of the day. Danielle Steele. And they're churning out, you know, mass market paperbacks worth of this romance stuff. And libraries are buying it, bookstores are selling it. So it's totally believable because that was still the thing. Not to say that it's not a thing or that it's disappeared now, but I would say I think it's a lot less of what people are buying now. Yeah. Is romance. Yeah, especially those sort of like straight up, like either bodice strippers or Harlequin-esque books, definitely. I think, you know, there's a lot of the... And I kind of hate this this subgenre name, like paranormal romance. Because mm-hmm. what does that even mean? <laughs> um, <laughs> it means werewolves and vampires and ghosts, Juliet. Duh. True. True. <laughs> uh, literally everything that you like. 
Yeah. <laughs> I'm just kidding. That's true. I do like a lot of those books that would <laughs> fall in that category. I think that's why I would get mad is like at certain bookstores, you would go look for them in the horror section. And then you'd be like, where is this author? Where is this book? And they'd be like, oh, no, it's in the paranormal romance section. I'm like, really? That's a thing now at bookstores. <laughs> Why? Now, though, they do have big horror sections in bookstores, which is, like, insane. Yeah. Because I think, Stephen King aside, like, there's a couple of authors that you could list off, you know, on one hand that were kind of aside from that. Because Stephen King regularly was just sold in fiction. Right. That's correct. Even though most of his books, not, you know, Dark Tower and stuff notwithstanding, most of his stuff is tried and true horror. Like, just straight up horror. Even a lot of Anne Rice stuff was, you know, like Interview with a Vampire, certainly. I can't remember which hour, but Interview with a Vampire, when it first, first came out, I don't think it was in a horror section. So weird. Yeah. It's so weird to think that now, like, we have all of these genres. And God bless, like, love it. Yeah. I can't wait, you know. I can't wait to see what, how much more that fills out. But that is totally a 90s thing. I remember going into my library and there just being rows and rows and rows of paperback romance. Yeah. I mean, it's still, there are still quite a few of them. And the other thing is, like, these books are not heavy reading. No. Typically. They're page turners. You know, they're 150, 250 pages. They're small. They're not dense. You you know, you don't need a primer to read this. You're going to fly through it, probably. And, like, a couple afternoons or, you know, waiting to pick your kid up from the bus stop or something like that. You're going to be flying through this stuff. And then you're going to be like, oh, well, this was only $8. I'm going to go and buy it several right, more. Right, So. I think the reason those are declining even more now, you know, not just expectations on the parts of readers and just demanding other stuff. But I also think that the YA fiction to adult reader pipeline, like the YA novels have improved so much mm. that you don't even have the thing of like, I can remember like people my age especially in middle school like sneak in their mom's book oh, yeah. to read the dirty scenes <laughs> you know because they were kind of done with kids books mm-hmm. and were looking for something a story that was more adult and had a little romance in it and stuff and now the YA stuff is so good there's less of there's less of a need or an appeal to those like easily accessible paperbacks even for younger folks who then find an affinity with them and like grow up watching them it's kind of the same thing that's happened with soap operas in my opinion oh yeah yeah like we don't have a generation of kids that are watching soap operas like with their grandmas anymore yeah and so they don't grow up to be soap opera watchers yeah and it's funny that you mentioned soap operas because another thing that i thought of with this that is truly 90s is like that fantasy of like romantic whirlwind love yeah I think now, 2023, I mean, granted, I'm 32, so, like, you know, I'm not ancient by any means, but coming up into a world where now we're very real about needs, wants, desires, and we're not like, oh, we're going to have this, you know, English count, or no, they don't have counts, (laughs) duke, or whatever, earl, or what have you, viscount, he's not going to come and, like, sweep you off your feet and take you to some castle, you know, with the butler and all that that's not a thing anymore. We're like, oh, no, let's be realistic. This is the age of dating apps and Tinder and swiping left and right and 
being more open and honest about what it is that you want. And also not the finality of one relationship thinking like, how people are more open about open relationships and sexuality and things like that. This was not that time. Yeah. The time when you could let loose is when you're reading a book like Misery's Trial and you're like, oh, what happens next? I can put myself in her shoes and kind of like be swept away in this fantasy. And now we're definitely more grounded, I think, in the real. Not to say that escapist romance isn't a thing anymore. but Oh, yeah, it still is. I think in real life, people are less wanting an escape and more wanting like, hey, I don't have to be bound in the trappings of conventional monogamy. I get to design my own life. It might be nice to read a book like that once in a while, but I'm not going to regularly need to escape my own life to do that. Right, right, exactly. But one of the things I also thought was like, kind of tied in with that, the fact that Annie is obsessed, like fully immersed and obsessed in these books, and they are tawdry romance novels, also written by a man. Yeah. Written by Paul. Yeah. Is even more interesting because for me, at at least as far as I remember it, the big romance novels that were written in the time that my mom was reading them and I was, you know, sneaking them in middle school, those were all female writers. Yeah. Or at least their pen names were female. Sandra Brown, Nora Roberts, Danielle Steele. I can't think of any off the top of my head. I can't either. Yeah. So that is really interesting, number one. And number two, the fact that she's not just like, go into the midnight release of these books, you know, and like eating them up and then being like, okay, now back to my real life. She is fully immersed in these. Yeah. In, you know, page turner romance. This isn't like, I can't even think of a book, you know, all quiet on the Western front. She's not like immersed in all quiet on the Western front, (laughs) like letting it rule her life. It's like, this is a book that most people, and Paul even says it later on in the, in the movie He's like, oh, finally, the critics are giving me, you know, they have good reviews for my books. The critics think that this is easy to read, mass market, you know, fodder. It's not the best book in the world. Yeah. But yet Annie is so incredibly incensed by it. It's also really interesting because Annie seems to have crossed this line with her fandom of these books. It's weird because she's back and forth. Like, she recognizes Paul as the creator of these characters and of these stories. And yet they are so real to her at various points. She says to Paul, like, when she's saying, you killed misery, it's like, it's not, oh, you you killed her in, it's not the way I wanted the story to end. It's you killed this person, Mm -hmm. you know? And that's just a really, really interesting balance. It makes her a really interesting character that sometimes you feel like, wow, she thinks these characters are, like, real. But she also recognizes the author. Like, that's that's an interesting dynamic. And that is one thing I will say in appreciation of both the writing of this film, Kathy Bates' performance, and Stephen King's original story. To be able to achieve that in a way that works and doesn't feel forced is a real accomplishment because they could have very easily gone the easy route and been like, well, she thinks that this is real or she's just obsessed with Paul. Like she's fallen in love with him or something. But the fact that it's both just makes her a more interesting and a more sinister character. 
Definitely. Yeah. And I do agree with you about Kathy Bates' performance. I feel like there are very few other women who could have done that role justice for the viewer not to really know where she falls on that line because she flips back and forth. Yeah. It does also make it really easy to see why Paul wasn't immediately in awareness of her, how she is, because it does seem at first that she's very kind and maybe a little over the top, potentially a little lonely. Maybe she doesn't have many people over, many friends. But even when she goes into her first big swing, Paul doesn't seem to be scared. He seems more like, oh, this is weird. When she like smashes the plant stand above his head, he's upset, but he doesn't seem like he fully is aware of what's going on and that she has the capability of going way, way, way beyond that and actually physically harming him. Yeah. He just seems more, like, puzzled or perplexed. He doesn't lash out in anger. He doesn't yell at her. He's just kind of like, okay, yeah. all right, all right, this is rowdy. <laughs> or, no, maybe it's the, the time, it's the first time, so the time the before. Soup. Yeah, with the soup. He's just like, oh, okay, she's weird. She She lives by herself, so she likes things tidy. She doesn't like to make a mess. I can't help her with this, so maybe that's it. Yeah. And then it just gets worse from there. But you can see, like, there is a progression to his realization and awareness of where she is and how far she's willing to push past that. I think that Paul's reaction to her in that first moment is really interesting, too, because it's like you can kind of see, like, a threat assessment happening where it's like, well, or maybe not a threat assessment, but, like, a justification of, like, well... Yeah, she kind of flew off the handle. I don't know what her life is like every day. And she's been immensely kind to me and is caring for me. And maybe she's a little stressed out because she didn't think she was going to be caring for this immobile author, you know, interrupting her life. All right, I'm going to justify this and it's fine for now. Yeah. And obviously it was not fine. (laughs) One of the things that you told me about... James Kahn taking this role is that a lot of people, a lot of leading men at the time and in the, in the late 80s and early 90s gave up this role because they saw Paul as being too passive. Yeah. And I wanted you to expand a little bit on that. Yeah. So I did some reading about this film and there was a quite a lengthy list of actors that they wanted to play Paul. Jack Nicholson was in consideration. He turned it down after his experience on The Shining. Stanley Kubrick has ruined everything for everyone. (laughs) He wasn't sure if he wanted to do another Stephen King project. I know Warren Beatty was in the running. They never heard back from him. Several other kind of big actors of the late 80s, early 90s were offered this role or asked to read for this role. And quite a few of them turned the part down because they felt like, Paul was too passive, and as a leading man, um, as an actor who was typically in very strong, like, you know, typical leading man, you know, cis leading man roles, that the passivity of this character and the the fact that this character was so passive to such a dominant woman villain character would harm their careers and would harm, like, their reputation as actors or what roles they could potentially get in the future so they turned it down 
the patriarchy is crap. <laughs> Let's just say it. The patriarchy hurts all of us. Yeah. But I'm really glad James Conn took this role because I think he was really great in it. One of the things I appreciate the most about him in this part is the fact that he took that passivity of the character because he was physically immobile most of the time and put it all in his face. Like you could just, the way he would sometimes just take a beat and stare at her, you could just read volumes into that. And I just, I loved it so much. It told so much of the story in a really great way. So ultimately, I think the right person landed with the role, but it's disappointing that so many actors felt that way about this part. And it's funny, too, because I think James Caan always kind of plays the quiet guy. Yeah. Like, when he was in The Godfather, when he played Sonny, sort of uh, less reactionary, you know. Against Marlon Brando, Marlon Brando has that aggressiveness and periods of quiet, but James Caan's really, like, the temperate, moderate one. And you see that in this, and I think that it is 100% necessary for Paul to be passive and not aggressive. And that's because the entire time he's calculating and reading and assessing what's happening on a yeah. on a minute to minute basis with Annie. When can I get a jab in here? When am I going to be able to enact my own plan? When can I get out of here? And it seems that he has no, with the exception of the beginning when he says like, it's his daughter's birthday and which who even knows if that's true, right? Like, we know that he has a daughter, but that could have just been an excuse. We, yeah. we don't even know because she never comes back she, or that idea never comes back into play. But in order for him to really assess who Annie is and how he's going to form his escape, he bides his time and he waits and he assesses like every day something new. And he's observing, okay, she's very angry. Okay, she's gone back to being really sorry. Okay, now she's seeking my approval. Yeah. So he's having to, you know, let those things wash over him rather than being aggressive, which is only going to, you know, stoke the bear, essentially, and cause her to do things like smashing his feet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which, it's so funny. That's the scene that people always talk about, yeah. is the smashing of the feet. It's brutal, it's violent, it's awful. But I honestly, I think I was more affected by some of the earlier scenes when she is freaking out, like when she smashes the plant stand. I think I was more affected by that than I was by her cold, calculated hobbling of him. I think those things are scarier because they're more realistic. Yeah. Because for the majority of us, we're not going to be in a situation where somebody is going to smash our ankles you know, with a blunt weapon while we're, you know, already immobilized. Right. For most of us. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but I think all of us have been in a situation at some point in our lives, some of us as young kids, mm-hmm. where somebody is angry for reasons that we don't understand and it's scary. Yeah. And we don't really have a way, a good way to escape. Again, like if we're little kids, you know, where can you go in the house kind of a thing, even as an adult, you know, I I always laugh at the advice that various advice people give where they're like, if you want to have a conversation with somebody, do it in the car. That way they'll focus on the conversation. And I'm like, every time somebody tries to have a serious conversation with me in the car, I'm seriously considering how badly I will get hurt if I tuck and roll on out. <laughs> 
so you know but that i think i think so many people can relate to that feeling of like being trapped in a tense situation whether there's anger or just tension displayed so i totally get why those earlier things were scarier yeah than, than the actual smashing scene and she feels more annie feels more out of control and yeah. less calculating in those moments like she's completely out of it she does not feel like she's responsible for her actions in those those moments and that if she just says sorry afterwards then everything's fixed as where when she you know hits him when she hobbles him or even the time when she threateningly you know douses his bedclothes in lighter fluid she's very sweet and kind and she's trying to be charming And that is just very unsettling. Yeah. But the moments when she loses control and she starts breaking things, which some of us have experienced that too, you know, being around somebody who's physically violent, even if it's not towards your body, if if it's towards a thing, you still know, like, that could be me. Right. So I think that's, uh, maybe that's why it was more affecting to me. But yeah. Yeah. I also definitely want to give Kathy Bates a shout out for Annie's turnabout during the scene with the rain oh my gosh when she's like oh sometimes the rain gives me the blues and she talks very frankly with paul about you know i love you i know that you don't love me back i know that we you know that this could never be a thing don't try and tell me any different and she's she gets like this very strange clarity about her that she doesn't normally have she like she's back down into reality and she really bums her out with the rain And it's, like, a totally different person, almost. Yeah, the acting in that scene is just phenomenal. And they do change her appearance to illustrate it. But, like, costuming aside the physicality of it, like, just the way that she embodied that sadness was amazing. She's such an amazing actor. Yeah, really, truly you mentioned something about the neurodivergence. I want I wanted to see if you would talk more about that. Yeah. So Stephen King has been very careful to not give any sense of an official diagnosis for Annie. Many people have speculated over the years. And quite frankly, I think the speculation gets a little out of hand. Mm-hmm. Um, if you read some people's theory, it's like, they just went through the tables of contents in the um, DSM. Oh, yeah. It's like they just went through the tables of contents and they're like, yep, that's Annie, that's Annie, that's Annie, that's Annie. And I think that that is a dangerous thing to do. Um, I question the wisdom of, like, officially trying to put a diagnosis on this character. I don't know if that's the most productive thing to do or the way that we're meant to understand this film. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the interesting thing about that is that Stephen King has said in more recent years that the writing of the novel Misery was a lot about him dealing with his relationship with substance. Mm -hmm. He's been very open over the years about his substance use and his recovery What he wasn't as open about and has been recently starting to talk about a lot more is how that really played into his works. I mean, some of it's really obvious. Like, you can see it in Jack Torrance. Mm -hmm. Like, you kind of know, okay, like, yeah, this is something manifesting here with Jack Torrance. Um, A lot of people didn't see it in this story, but he said that looking back, he is Paul 
and Annie as representative of his relationship with substance, you know, with being trapped under the weight of his own addiction and, you know, feeling, um, wanting to free himself and wanting to do anything to free himself and yet having to work within the constraints of his addiction and his illness. And I think that's a really, really interesting way to view the film. And I almost prefer to look at it through that lens rather than a specific lens of like a diagnosis of neurodivergence. I think maybe it's a more productive way to view the film. Mm -hmm. I agree with you because it makes sense. Why try to diagnose a fictional character in the first place? I mean, she's not real, number one. Number two, it makes more sense to look at Annie as substance because it that's why her moods can, you know, one minute she's taking care of you, yeah. the, the next minute she's throwing things or she's putting a needle in your arm. She's got you passed out. She's got you knocked out. She's throwing you in the basement, you know, hiding you. But all the while, she won't let up. Yeah. And she's alternately pumping you up with compliments and trying to make you feel like your best self and your most confident self and your most productive self. Mm-hmm. And, and really, you're you're unable to do anything about it. Yeah. Um, and the rest of the world is looking for you, you know, right. looking for that person who is not uh, in their full capacity to handle themselves. So, yeah. Yeah, I think that is a more productive way of doing things. I would say that unless an author has the intent of representing somebody with a mental illness that they have, you know, explicitly stated, yeah, that it's really unhelpful yeah. to try and diagnose a, a yeah. fictional character. Yeah, I think, yeah, there are ways to do it if an author has an explicit intent coming from a place of goodwill, too, I will say just trying to slap diagnoses on characters, especially characters that are in that villain role, like it's a really dangerous thing to do because it ends up even the kind of well-intentioned efforts to try to like dive in and analyze the film and understand you end up just participating in a lot of stigma. Yeah. And so I just like try not to do that with this film. Yeah. So when I read the book, there's a lot, I think, this. it's been a while since I've read it, but I think that there was a lot more emphasis put on Annie and the issues that she had in the past. Correct. Yeah. And it almost seems like in this, in the movie, her the characterization of that is almost, it's almost forgotten. It's almost passed over. Yeah. They do make mention of it to say, like, okay, look, she is evil. She has killed babies. She has killed people. She killed her roommate, et cetera, et cetera. But in thinking about it as a way of characterizing your drug use or substance abuse, it doesn't really matter. Like, those things matter less. The thing that is most important, like, it's confirmation for Paul, but the most important thing is where he is now and how to get out of it. Right. Like, realizing, okay, I finally understand she's truly murderously dangerous. It's not just that she was she would maim and mutilate me, but she is murderously dangerous. And not just, like, people, also babies. Yeah. Which is, I mean, this is the early 90s, so this is, like, yeah, you know, shaken baby syndrome and yep. things like that were all over the place. So, especially heinous, I would say. 
So very interesting, I think interesting parallels there. Yeah, for sure. Another thing I wanted to make a mention of is that this is one of the very few instances I can think of in the past, like in the 70s, 80s, 90s, of a mainstream film where a male presenting person and a female presenting person are in a fist fight to the death. And yeah. like there are no where, holds barred. Where we also know the genders of each. Yeah. Because I can think of like horror films, especially where you don't know that it is a female presenting person until the big reveal at right. the end. But I think you're I think you're right about that, especially in a mainstream film. Yeah. I'm thinking like as we're watching this, I'm like, man, James Conn's really giving it to her. Yeah. He smashes her in the head with the typewriter and he's gouging her eyes out. And she's really you know, going after him too. Yeah. And I'm thinking like how many other movies have I seen like two uh, opposite gendered people really going after yeah. it in, in a fight to the death. And I, I was struggling with that. Yeah. I can't think of any off the top of my head. I mean, I'm sure there's probably an outlying example somewhere, but in especially in a movie that, you know, was a multiple Oscar nominee that, you know, was a pretty mainstream film that Rob Reiner directed. You right. Know? Exactly. Yeah. And that was the other thing is like, it's, this is a, a bit of a departure for Rob Reiner. So he was requested by Stephen King. I'm surprised by that. Yeah. Um, I'm sure that they're probably friends. It was because of Stand By Me. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. But Stand By Me is like so, so different in tone than this movie. But I I can see that. Like Stephen King probably is like, has had good experiences on one hand. You know, you can count yeah. his good experiences on one hand of directing or having directors adapt his movies. So if he was like pleased with Rob Reiner, he's like, please, please do all of the rest of them. I think it was basically... Like, he wasn't sure if he wanted to license this one for film, mm-hmm. and he was really, still really burnt after the whole Kubrick Shining experience. And um, he was considering not licensing this one, and then he was so delighted by Rob Reiner's treatment of Stand By Me that he said, I will license it on the condition that you get Rob Reiner to direct it. Well, God bless Rob, Rob yeah. Reiner. He's just... <laughs> I mean, really, any of his movies I could watch, with the exception of maybe this one, and be like, oh, my heart. (laughs) Yeah, this one, not so much in that regard. I also, like, I feel like Stephen King has a penchant for killing off beloved characters. And really, the sheriff, like, it really still hurts me. I know. It really hurts my feelings, because that sheriff, he seems so pure. He does, and, and his read, wa- and he, his spunky wife, <laughs> and he read all the misery books, and, and he's the one who cracked the case and everything. Like, <sighs> makes me feel some type of way. Yeah, like I could see him as being my like old grandpa, totally. And then you know, just getting killed. R.I.P. <laughs> yeah, R.I.P. Next time we're going to uh, get you ready for Valentine's Day by uh, doing. The obvious choice in the horror genre, if I do say so myself. We're going to do My Bloody Valentine. We are going to do the original from 1981. One of my personal faves. I'm really, really excited to watch this one again, especially with the kind of podcast glasses on. (laughs) My special podcast glasses. Yes. And I've seen this one once before, but 
it's been a long time. Nice. I've seen the the remake more recently. Okay. I think they did that one in 3D. They did. <laughs> so this one we will not be watching in 3D. <laughs> no, this this will be a 2D film experience. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Thanks for listening to Attack of the Final Girls. Find us online at attackofthefinalgirls.com. We are Attack of the Final Girls on Instagram and TikTok and Final Girls Pod on Twitter. Our theme music is by House Ghost and is available on Rad Girlfriend Records. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcasting app so you don't miss an episode and rate and review on Apple Podcasts so more people can find the show. I'm Juliet. And I'm Teresa. Until next time, stay scary. Tonight.